Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Ryan. I'm not a real doctor. I just got a PhD. Don't tell me about your rashes. I'm not going to look at your tongue. Uh, There's some psychologists in trouble. Finally, maybe they'll be in trouble. These dipshits who um, assisted the CIA in developing their torture techniques... Uh, for about, I think it was $11 million um, these two guys got in consulting fees, helping the CIA work out exactly how they were going to torture people who had not been convicted of anything. Anyway, that's in the the news this week because they uh, have been censored by the APA, the American Psychological Association, finally, years, years after all this shit happened. And they're referred to as doctors. And as a psychologist, I just want to say psychologists are not doctors. Real doctors go to medical school. Psychologists just, you know, get a PhD somewhere. Anyway, uh, this is a really special episode of Tangentially Speaking. Sonia Lay is here. She has had an experience that is um, sort of beyond description. So I won't try to describe it too much. Other than to say that uh, after being married to her husband for, I think, 23 years, I think she says, um, he went into the hospital for some surgery. And the guy who came out of the hospital was not her husband. I'll let her tell the rest of the story. But imagine that. Holy shit. He still had her husband's body, had her husband's face. And that's about it. So it's a it's an amazing story, and uh, I'm really honored that she uh, came on the podcast to tell the story. She came down to Portland. She had some she, her publishers based here, and uh, she was in town, and and we did this one in person. So that was a lot of fun. Before we get to that, I thought uh, since we still got a lot of that Fourth of July patriotism smoke in the air. I'd play another song by Ed Dupa. Uh, it's pronounced D-U-P-A-S, and I pronounced it Dupas or something like that last week. But uh, he's got the uh, fancy silent S at the end of his name. So it's Dupa. I played a beautiful song by him last week, um, uh, which I hope you enjoyed. And I can't forget, what's it called? Good, Good American Life, I think it's called. Uh, meant ironically, of course. Uh, This song is called Flag, and before I say anything else, let's just listen to Flag by Ed Dupa. You can find him on iTunes, you can Google him, he's got uh, SoundCloud, he's got a webpage, he's out there, and I'm not a big country western fan, uh, but this guy really hits it out of the park. So here's Flag by Ed Dupa. Flag goes up as the sun goes 
sun comes down Jets go by Before we hear the sound Rise to our feet As if to say Red, white and blue Till I die in day The flag waves high When the tax man comes He says you gotta pay Just to be someone Yeah, it'll cost you plenty If you wanna stay Red, white and blue Till you die in day Now the flag hangs still When the wind don't blow They keep the TVs on To let the people know They gotta toe the line Yeah, there's a debt to pay Red, white, and blue Till their dying day Flag comes down and they fold it nice and hand it to somebody's wife. And nothing to do, nothing to say. It's red, white, and blue till his dying day. Flag goes up as the sun comes down. Jets go by before we hear the sound. Rise to our feet as if to say, Red, white, and blue, till I die in day. Red, white, and blue, till I die in day. Damn, that's a good song. I don't know what Ed was thinking specifically when he wrote those words, but, you know, the first image of the song, Jets Go By Before We Hear the Sound, and the rest of the song is all about how, I think, to me, it's all about how we're being controlled, manipulated, sold a bunch of bullshit, and we buy it before we know the price just like those jets go by before we hear the sound. And I don't blame anybody. I'm not saying I'm smarter than anybody else. I'm lucky. I've had a lot of time to sit around on my ass and think about things. 
I spent a lot of time in hammocks in foreign countries looking back at America and wondering what the fuck is going on back there. Most people never have a chance to do that. So I'm not, please don't ever misconstrue my criticisms of America for a sense of superiority because that's not where I'm coming from. I feel nothing but compassion for people who are caught up in this. Fold the, you know, the flag goes down, they fold it nice and hand it to somebody's wife. What the fuck is, what's he talking about there? He's talking about somebody who went off and got blown up. For what? Nobody knows. Nobody can explain. You want to see why the shit's hitting the fan in this country? Take a look at uh, an article Matt Taibbi wrote in Rolling Stone this week about Eric Holder, who just uh, retired after six years as the attorney general in the Obama administration. Attorney general's the supposed to be the guy who goes after the big criminals. He's the he's the head. He's the top cop, right? How many Wall Street? Executives went to prison for fucking over hundreds of thousands, millions of Americans, not to mention the world economy, robbing their retirement accounts, putting old people out to live in their cars. How many Wall Street executives went to prison for that? For laundering $30 billion from the Sinaloa cartel? How many? If you're guessing zero, you're right. Zero. Not one. But this shouldn't surprise anybody because before Eric Holder went to work for the Obama administration, he worked for a legal firm that represents a dozen or more of the same firms that he was then expected to police as attorney general. I'm talking about Goldman Sachs. I'm talking about the big banks, the big brokerage firms, the very people that did not go to prison under his watch. And now that he's finished working in Washington for the public good, service as they call it, public service, he's gone back to the law firm to cash in on uh, his good behavior. He's, as Matt Taibbi describes him, as a, a double agent. And he's come in from the cold. He's come home from his operation pretending to work in government when actually he's been working for Wall Street all the time. Meanwhile, there are people in prison for 30 years because they sold some mushrooms at a Grateful Dead show in 1982. That's the way it works, folks. Political process in the United States is, is, is a bunch of bullshit. Um, Bernie Sanders, yeah, I've met Bernie Sanders, actually. Uh, he's a good guy. I think he's real. But hey, I think Obama's real. It's not about the people. It's about the, the system. It's about the machine. It's about the organism in which we are embedded as surely as mitochondria is embedded in a cell or the bacteria are embedded in our guts. We serve a function for a larger organism. And uh, depressing as that sounds, that's how I see it. I could tell you, after I finish this book, I'm going to write some sort of like cheerful, I think I'm going to write a prehistoric erotic novel. I'm going to write like a like a, a mix of Fifty Shades of Grey and Clan of the Cave Bear because I can't take this shit anymore. I can't I can't uh keep looking <laughs> at reality. I need to look at something else for a while. So that's why I played Flag. Hope you enjoyed that and I hope you listen to it, download it, send Ed some money. 
Ed's a podcast listener, by the way. This is part of the ongoing series of playing songs and music sent in by listeners of the podcast, which is great. I didn't foresee that happening, but uh, I'm really enjoying it. I hope you are too. All right. Uh, Thank you, as always, to those of you who are supporting the podcast on Fund What You Love. There are over 100 of you now, and that is wonderful. Very much appreciate it. Um, Fundwhatyoulove.com is a place where you can sign in once and sort of pledge uh, a small donation to the podcast that uh, gets charged to your card monthly. So I sort of have an operating budget and uh, it's it's great. And there's some other projects on there as well. If you've got a project, you can sign up there. So that's one way to support the podcast if you uh, would like to keep it bullshit free. And another way to do it is through using the Amazon portal on my page, chrisryanphd.com. Some people have been, I just looked at the report yesterday. There, I've got it up here. Let's see. There's some fantastic uh, purchases. Somebody apparently is studying occupational therapy. They got a copy of Applied Theories in Occupational Therapy. Uh, cost them $44 and uh, 286 came to the podcast. So thank you, whoever that is. Um, a couple people got a copy of Moody Bitches by a uh, previous recent guest, Julie Holland. We got 95 cents per copy on that. Now somebody bought a camera. Where is that? Uh, oh, here we go. Somebody bought a DJ1 Phantom 2 Vision quadcopter with... Oh, oh, I see. It's a drone, and it comes with a video camera and three-axis gimbal, whatever the hell a gimbal is. That cost them $967, and at no additional cost to them, we got 38 bucks to the podcast. So there you go. So next time you're going to be buying yourself a spy um, drone camera, just do it through my pod, through my uh, website there, and we'll get 38 bucks if you get the uh, DJ1 Phantom 2 Vision Plus. Wow, very cool. So thanks to all of you who do that. Um, go through the Amazon portal on chrisryanphd.com. You can also order t-shirts. Mom is sending them out. We've got some new Talking Out My Ass t-shirts coming in soon, which means I will, of course, have to record some more episodes of that. Um, last one was when I just arrived in New Delhi. And then the next one's going to be up in Srinagar, in Kashmir, and some of the crazy shit I saw up there. And then probably I'll include the uh, bus ride back down to New Delhi on the Super Deluxe Video Coach, which is an experience I will never forget. I'll get to that soon. One more thing I want to mention. Uh, Some of you are still subscribing to the premium uh, program on Libsyn. Uh, I'd encourage you not to do that because I've taken down the paywall. So um, I appreciate that. If you're doing that just as a way of supporting the podcast, it's it's great. But only half of the money comes to the podcast. The rest goes to Libsyn. And since I'm phasing that out, there's no point in doing that anymore. You'll see the one-year subscription has been disabled. They still have the six-month running. I've asked them to take it down. Um, but anyway, please don't do that um, if you've already done it. That's cool. Don't worry about it. But uh, if you're considering doing it, 
don't do it. It's much better if you just, if you want to support the podcast, you can make a donation through my webpage or um, you can, you know, go through the Amazon portal, all these other things I'm always droning on about. Um, that's it. Thank you very much. Get you some t-shirts from Sure Design t-shirts. They're fantastic. They also sell, you know, Thai fisherman pants and yoga wear and all sorts of stuff. Check them out. Check out the Duncan Trussell Family Hour if you want to spread out a little bit. He's uh, one of my favorite podcasters. I'll be going down to L.A. at the end of July. And I think Duncan and I are going to do a podcast together. I don't know if Joe's in town or not, but if he's in town, maybe we'll even get another shrimp parade in the can. That would be great. I'm going to play you out with another tune by um, a podcast listener, James Thomas, I played one of his songs a couple weeks ago. I thought this song was appropriate for this uh, particular episode. It's a song called Love. You can find James Thomas online at myjamesthomas.bandcamp.com. The album is called Before the Light, and the song is called Love. Love is like wine. I must let myself think if I'll drink every time For I swallow so fast As each moment rolls past Each night gets so dizzy down under the last Love's like a house on the moon I get carried away if I build it too soon I don't mind floating free But there's nowhere to breathe And a man can't believe when it all feels so empty Love's like a wolf in the woods Now we see eye to eye and it's well understood It's a one-sided game, only I am to blame For picking a shot I don't know how to aim Love's like the dance of the stars When it seems so much bigger than all that we are I can look up and see such a beautiful dream But it's the trick of the hook that pulls fish from the stream Like the wave on a beach Some say it's safe on the shore But it's so out of reach If I want it to stay Not sweep me away To a world that'll swallow me up in a grave And love's like the rain coming down When it's fallen so far Just to break on the ground And the rivers all know It was round long before It rusted the key you kept secret for me by the door And even as a stranger Counting quarters in the midnight fall 
I'm here with Sonia Lea. Is that pronounced right? Sonia Lee. Lee. Ah, Lee. Yeah. I'm not Lea. Why was I getting all no, fancy? No, it's, it's normal. You are the author of a book called Wondering Who You Are, which tells an incredible story and which I was very honored to to blurb. It's a weird, weird to put the words honor and blurb in the same sentence. <laughs> blurb is such a silly little word. There you are on the front cover blurb. of the book. Oh, on the front? On the oh. front oh, of the wow. book with your magnificent words. That's a lot of uh, responsibility. Um, I, I went very quickly from being um, the appreciative recipient of blurbs for Sex at Dawn to... Mm. Um, for a couple of months after the book came out, I had this idea like, I'll blurb anybody you ask me because I owe the universe. And that wore out pretty quickly. And now mm-hmm. I really say no to everybody who I don't personally know or they're not writing about something that I'm really passionate about or very focused in, you know, because everybody, you'll see. If your book gets some kind right. of legs, then you're, you're going to be getting emails from everyone. And then you you know like you want you don't have time to read the stuff and you don't want to blurb things you haven't read because right. that's kind of dishonest. And um, but your book uh, was just so extraordinary. Uh, even before I read the book, I, I knew a little bit of the outlining of the, the outline of the story, which is just an amazing life experience. And I was really happy to see that your writing style is equal to the story, which mm, is thank you. tough. I mean that's tough Thanks. do you want to, do you want to just sort of outline the story for for listeners sure. i'm sure you're used to that by now a little bit <laughs> um in the 23rd year of our marriage my husband richard went into surgery for a rare cancer and he came out without any memory of our life so he lost all of the major events that you cherish the birth of your children you know the day that you got married all of those things um, disappeared. He also couldn't communicate. And he had what we would come to see was a radical personality change. So the book is really about what happened in our relationship after we went home from right. that cancer right. hospital. And you, when you went into the surgery was it something was it a life-threatening situation yes it's always a life-threatening situation this cancer if it isn't um operated on and sometimes if it isn't operated on by the right physician using the right technique it's a form of appendix cancer and uh, this was his second surgery so we knew that we had to do something really pretty risky we already knew that he might not survive it and had done all the preparation for it, you know, in talking right. about that, what happens when you have an experience like that is it just it takes you right to okay, so what are the important things to consider and and take care of? So we had all of those conversations in preparation, but we couldn't have expected anything quite like this at the other side of it. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, well, that, that's what I mean. I read the the manuscript when you sent it to me, but it's probably a year ago. So forgive me if if I don't uh, yeah. have all the details sure. right. But um, so that's important. You you it, this wasn't like going to the dentist and this just blew out of nowhere. You were facing something that was potentially life changing and just not the way you anticipated at all. Correct. And in a way, he did die. Yes, he did. Absolutely. I mean, that that was my experience of it. Um, my sister at one point said to me, um, very graciously and kindly, years in, I can see how in some ways it would have been easier if he had died. Yeah. Because then at least you get the sense of the communal support for having that self leave. Right. But, um, you know, really for for me in particular, because I was the one who was living with him, but also for our two teenage children, it was the experience of having the same body there, but not the same personality present. Yeah. Everything had been altered about who he was. It was very, um, he's kind of a guy's guy, masculine, charming, um, you know, liked to be the center of attention, very verbal and very intellectual. And we had that kind of a big engagement with each other. And at the other side of the surgery, uh, we began to see over time, um, he, it was almost like he had been returned to a quality of innocence, you know, childlike innocence. And he was very shy, very introverted, didn't have a lot of language acuity initially. Um, and then eventually rebuilt more of a kinesthetic relationship to life. And um, so it was, it was something quite unlike uh, anything that I could have imagined or that many doctors had heard of, including um, something that was rather surprising, which was that he forgot his sexual history. His relationship with his sexual self was a part of that memory loss as well. Yeah, that was an aspect of the book I found uh, particularly moving. You, you were, you were, uh, I don't know what's the word. I mean, your your candor was uh, compelling. There, it was. You talked about, um, you know, some of the things you did to try to find your way through that situation, um, which uh, you were. Um, what's the word? You were unsparing uh, mm. about yourself and yes. about the things that you were. When you wrote this book, it's a, it's a memoir, which always requires that sort of conversation with yourself. You know, mm -hmm. like how deep am I going to go? How naked am I going to be here? Did you feel that you owed him something, some level of sincerity, or I mean, because it's his story, but he is kind of a minor character in some ways. I, I mean, yeah, it's I a think weird so. Thing. I think so too. I it is his story. He was the uh, catalyst for what happened in the relationship changes. Right. But really I, I think you're right. I think it was about my identity changes as a result of what happened for him. And um, I think I'm I was really concerned with honesty and um, in some degrees, the kind of over-concern that we have for how we need to show up in the world. Mm -hmm. or One of the things that's extraordinary about what happened with Richard is that he doesn't really have an ego in the same way as most people do. He's really generous and, 
and his orientation is towards service, but you know, even more than that, he has no reputation to manage whatsoever. So I think when I saw that in my life, I was like, oh, that's an option. Mm. You know, like it, it really doesn't have to be that I'm managing all these flaws about myself all the time so that mm. I need to present myself in the best possible light. I can really go for it and and tell about how I the turmoil that was inside me as I sought to try and stay in the marriage yeah. and try and grapple with what had happened. You know, I, there's this story is is so compelling because it touches on so many eternal themes, you mm-hmm. know. And so forgive me if I'm scattered because mm-hmm. every sentence you say, I think of five different things I want to follow yeah. up on, you know. Like you said, stay in the marriage. And before you came, I was thinking how uh, every marriage, everyone who's been in a relationship for more than five or six years probably, comes, wakes up one morning and realizes the person next to them isn't the person they married. Mm -hmm. Everyone goes through that. Mm -hmm. And then five years later, it'll be someone else. And, you know... You know, or men often complain that, you know, when, you know, my wife's ovulating, she's not the same woman she is, <laughs> yeah. you know. It's like you, there's yeah. some line about, you you know, you you don't marry a woman, you marry like five sisters, you know. Yeah. And, you know, one of them's beautiful and loving and the other's a complete bitch and then there's this one and that one. But your your experience sort of concretizes that, if that's even a word, concretizes it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way, it just, it just stretches everything to its beyond its limits it's it's bizarre so you said stay in the marriage what marriage right who who are you married to right that yeah and that's a great question i think um you know a lot of times initially in particular i was reacting out of conditioning right um you know there's so much that talks about how particularly if you're a caregiver and particularly if you're the wife side of the equation that a caregiver has to look like this and has to act like that and um what i really wanted to reconcile with with the writing of the book and and really in the living of the life is what do i want here and what what am i left with and what are we talking about when we talk right. about a marriage or relationship? So initially the commitment is just to helping him survive. The first couple of years were confusion, discomfort, trying to figure out how to help him survive. And yeah. then at the end of that period, then I had a real question to ask is now that he's okay and he can be out there, do I actually want to be in this relationship? So when I talk about this, I talk about the different stages that I was in in being in relationship with him, which was first grieving the loss of the man who I had been married to. Richard the First. Richard the First. And then there's this gap, which is was completely unpredictable to me, where you're kind of waiting around, living with someone that you don't quite yet know, mm. but you don't know whether you're going to fall in love with them again. It's It's like is it friendship? Is it um, flirting? You know, what is this actual engagement that we're having with each other? And then we did really have the lucky experience of falling in love for another time. 
as like this different people. Marriage. I know, it kind of is, right? Because <laughs> they say yeah. that, you know, in India, yeah. they always say like, right. you know, if you live with someone and, yeah. and they're nice people and your parents pick the right one, eventually you'll fall in love. Yeah, and you know, people will sometimes say, oh, you're so devoted, you know, and I'm like, you know, it actually has nothing to do with devotion for me at all. That's not why I stuck around. I really did examine leaving, and I really looked at, was this what I wanted hard? But what it was is curiosity. Like, he's so fundamentally changed into a being that I've never seen before or been around before, and I was incredibly curious about what that experience was like, and that compelled Mm -hmm. me to be around it even more so. So you said something earlier, you Excuse me. Use the phrase "he returned to a state of innocence." Yeah. When you say "return," it are there aspects that you recognize in him that you sort of caught glimpses of before that were sort of drowned out by other parts of his personality, or is this just a shuffling of the deck and a completely new hand? Well, I think over time there are parts of his gestures that have returned, I'll tell you something really simple. Like, when when he first came out of the hospital, you know how guys sleep and they just, like, stretch themselves out to the front? Mm-hmm. Like, he would just take up as much space as possible um, on the couch or in bed. And afterwards, he slept curled up like a baby in the smallest amount of space possible. So it was like the most fundamental thing that you could imagine about the person that you're engaged with Mm. had radically changed that much. Unconscious behavior. Right. And then now he's back to taking up a little bit more space. It's not quite the the bigness that he had before in any way, shape, or form in his personality, but there's there's a sense of ease that wasn't there. In the beginning. Yeah. Uh, before we, we pursue any more of this, uh, just on a purely medical level, uh-huh. do you know what happened? Is, is Has this been explained, or does anyone understand how this happened? The best thing that we think from um, the hospital records and hearing what we have from neuropsychologists and other doctors is that he had a, an oxic insult. So, so that's a lack of oxygen to la- parts of the brain. Right. During the surgery, um, he had a bleed. It nicked his stomach. And um, when I was in intensive care with him, with him they, he'd had a positive test indicating that his blood was fine, that there wasn't anything wrong. And so even though he was losing consciousness and uh, appeared to be physically struggling, the laboratory at the hospital wouldn't release blood for him. And so there was a whole sequence of mistakes that happened in about two hours. And as a result of that, the, he lost oxygen to the brain, and that's just enough time to cause a, an oxic insult, which is an acquired brain injury. falls under the umbrella of a traumatic brain injury, but it's not the, exactly the same kind as you would have with a, with a concussion or some, a traumatic right. blow. Yeah, it's more like a drowning or something. Correct. Someone's revived. Yeah. And it... It affected the memory particularly, but like, did it affect his memory of how to walk and how to eat and basic things like that? Or was it just personality, life stuff? That he- it was um, both long-term and short-term memory. And the best theory that we have for that is that when he woke up with such a radical 
personality change that he had a PTSD-like reaction right. to that. And that caused a more suppression of the long-term memory. So it's those two things kind of being in cycle that causes more of the problems. So no, he didn't, he didn't know how to communicate, but he did know um, basic body functions. And um, we seem to bond to each other. People always ask, did he remember you? I said, well, it, it's more like... I walked across the room with a look of concern on my face and held his hand, and then we were together mm. from that point on. So I always kind of have the question, if it was somebody else who had done that, would he be equally bonded right. with that individual? Would that be where the history of the new person began? I don't really have those kinds of answers, and that's where the whole thing kind of veers off into, um, I don't know, that's something that presents like a serious mystery mm. to me. Um, he very much bonded with who I was, but life just began at that point forward. So memories then became what I told him our life was. So he would learn different events and different ways of being. He lost, um, you know, kind of social graces. He lost the ability to care or even to know what to do if he like belched or if he was in a restaurant he could pick up his plate and lick it or lick his fingers and lick the plate and I mean there were just kind of a whole thing around re-educating him as to how the world yeah the whole deal yeah sounds like me yeah (laughs) it was it's kind of great in a way to (laughs) not be so inhibited about how to be in the and world it, it's funny it, it is it's very liberating to be around someone who just doesn't give a shit and yeah it's so i mean I, I imagine you probably experienced this i've got a friend for example dutch guy who uh just he like he'll scratch his balls he could be like meeting the queen and he'll scratch his balls <laughs> and, and he's just completely unaware of it you know and after hanging out with him for a while i, I just like I was in India when I was young. I was in India for a while, and you know, it's like burping and yeah, you know, bodily stuff in India. Like people are shitting in the street. Nobody right. gives a damn yeah. if you like fart on the bus or something. You know. Yeah. And I get back to America, and I'm just a disaster because I've forgotten to care about all these things. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And then you know, as I got older, then I just sort of was like, well, I don't. Who gives a shit? You know, I don't have a job. You know, like yeah. what do I have to lose? Right. I, not, not that I'm going to fart here in the podcast. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep that under control. But yeah, it's so. Now I'm, I'm trying to get inside his head. Then do, does he remember like these early days in the hospital, or that's all? That's all clouded. It's all gone. That's gone too. Mm-hmm. Is at this point? It's how long ago did this happen? Twelve years ago. Twelve years ago. So mm-hmm. at this point, is he accumulating memories? Yeah, he is. He, he's actually made it back to his career as a physical therapist. Physical therapist. Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, although he read anatomy and physiology textbooks for a really long period of to, time to get back, to yeah. try and get back, and couldn't memorize it when it was straight intellectual material. But right. uh, I had a bunch of friends who would come to the house and be guinea pigs for him, and it, it felt like as soon as he get his, got his hands on people, because he was kinesthetic, 
that the material came back to him through practice. So one of the things that happens to people with brain injury is that they learn accommodation strategies, yeah. you know. So he now knows a way to interact with most people don't even know he has a brain injury that he interacts with on a regular basis. But if you ask him something specific about his life, he may or may not have memories of it. Um, the thing I find really incredible, though, is um, like those memories that he has now that he didn't have when he came out of the brain injury are constructed from all of us telling him, yes, this is what it was. You know, his family, the children, myself, all, we all would say, oh, on this day, this is what occurred. And so we create that beautiful tale about that. But in essence, that's how we're all creating memory all the time yeah. anyway. It yeah. has to be more or less an agreement or an assumption about that's what our lives were like. Well, that's the danger of false uh, testimony. When the cops tell right. you you saw it, then eventually you start to think you did see it. Absolutely. Yeah. Memory, Milan Kundera had this line I often think of. Where he says, memory is not the opposite of forgetting. Memory is a way of forgetting. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's true. It's all, we're telling stories, but that, the relationship between the story and reality, whatever that is, who knows? Yeah, we tend to think it's like a film camera, you yeah. know, and it's just captured perfectly this event in our yeah. past, and um, my mentor, Priscilla Long, says it's more like a Civil War reenactment. <laughs> and I, th- <laughs> I think that's kind of it. Yeah, yeah. and it's true. It's, it's also, like, sort of on a meta level, it's interesting how technological metaphors uh, shape the way we think about things. Like you said, we think of it as a film camera. Yeah. Right before film cameras existed, then how did people envision memory? Right, probably right. more of a written thing, and, yeah. and in writing, you don't get it exactly the way it was. Right, a film camera is more sort of objective or whatever. And with the brain, people always oh, the brain's like a computer. Yeah, before it was like a steam engine. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So there, our metaphors shape our our thinking more than we're aware of. Yeah. So uh, at some point you had the conversation with him about writing this and sharing this very private part of your life together. How was that? What You know, he, he's always been really supportive of the work. Um, what happened for me is that I, I wrote an initial piece that went into um, the Southern Review. Brett Lott picked it out, went to the Southern Review, and I got so much encouragement to write a book after that. And I really couldn't do it. Um, I kind of took everything and put it away. And the couldn't re- do it emotionally? <coughs> no, I, w- and I couldn't do it emotionally because I hadn't decided to be married to Richard yet. And, uh-huh. and I, it was dredging up so much that was disruptive. I know that I, I do work with lots of soldiers and veterans and other people who experience trauma. And I do know that writing is healing. But at that moment in time, I really need to figure out if I wanted to spend that energy bonding with him and just see what was left. Then eventually when that did happen, I fully re-engaged with it as a book. And um, he's he's read every single version. He ha- he actually has had quite a bit of a voice in it. There were parts of the book that I didn't... I never made the assumption that he couldn't have a memory about what happened. And that's how certain things came up in the book that I wouldn't have been aware of. For example... Um, we used to do writing prompts. We would give him a writing prompt. And the first one was, um, what's your first memory? And off he went and came back, and we sat down afterwards, and he read it to me, which we would both always cry after something like that. You know, it's quite emotional to hear 
these things from his perspective. And uh, it was about a week or 10 days into the hospital visit when he woke up, we were walking in the hall, and he had the IV pole by his side, and he looked down, and there I was. And I was, I was staggered by that. Like, so it brings up a whole series of questions. Who is, who is I engaged with? Who was that being? What was going on? That, that's why, to me, kind of the model of him returning to a childlike state uh, really seemed to fit because because there was this quality of innocence. Mm-hmm. There was a quality of uh, preferences and what he wanted out of life weren't developed yet. Mm-hmm. And you know, just like we do, it, we most of us don't remember when we first were born. You know, mm-hmm. in labor and delivery, it's mm-hmm. usually later on in life. And so he has his moments that he can reference that were a little bit later on. Did and, you have a dog? When no, this happened? No. Why? Well, I, I'm just wondering how his relationship with animals would be. Because there's an innocence and there's a yeah. there's a, a directness. And I just did he like animals or does he like animals? Well, it's it's more uh, after living through a rigorous cancer like we did. We we don't really have a lot of other things to take care of anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We try not to acquire you know dogs yeah. and babies, yeah. but um, but there were lots of children around and. Um, Man, I mean, everybody falls in love with him because he has that kind of quality still. I mean, he's a mature man, and, and he's he's doing his thing now in the world. But there's a quality of openness about him that mm. people, and even in the story, people will say to me all the time, um, "I, you know, I understand what you're you're very honest in it. I really like the work, but I completely fell in love with your husband." Was, yeah, yeah, welcome. It's funny that. how people think. You know, it's to be lovable. I've got to add this and add that, and maybe what you need to do is subtract this and that. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. I really do think that's it. It felt like um, being ground down to the core in some way. What he was experiencing it makes you wonder if, if like the Buddha or Jesus had some brain trauma. Yeah, you know what I mean. That yeah. made them transcendental in some way. Yeah. Have you read Gazzaniga's stuff about that? About that there's part of the brain that um, when they set stimulation to it, develops this sense of an other Mm. that is like God or mystery or, you know, and they are thinking that, like, you know, Joan of Arc, the Buddha, maybe Jesus, who knows, had parts of their brain more fully developed that that could be stimulated and cause more of that kind of mysterious divine connection to occur. Yeah. I think that's fascinating, his work. Mm-hmm. It was super helpful to me um, in understanding this whole thing about the interpreter brain and how the narrative of the self gets developed. Mm. You know, that sense that our, you know I can pick up this glass and have a drink of it, but really who's the controller of that? I, I come in afterwards... And create my story about, oh, I must have wanted this sip of water, and that's why my hand did it. But when they register that part of the brain in split-brain experiments, that's a delayed response. Your your decision to do it is after you're already doing it. Yeah. 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 And there's some degree of me understanding him as a... I don't know what this word comes to mind, but I'm going to say it anyway. Like, kind of a, a more evolved self because he has the capacity for not caring about the narration, mm. not caring about the perception or 
even sometimes the continuity right. of things. Because, you know, with brain injury, there's um, you might remember things and you might not remember things. It, I think it's... Um, I mean, it's even bigger than that. It's like with identity changes. Yeah. It's like that. Like, who was I before? Could I? Could you force me back into that person I was when I had that major change? I mean, could any of us do that for each other if we wanted to? I, it feels nearly impossible to try and arrange a set of circumstances like that. So these, like these continuous narratives that we insist on, um, seem to be quite a fabrication. Yeah. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely. You you should talk to my friend Duncan Trussell. You ever listen to his podcast? No, no. He has a great podcast. He's, in fact, I'll I'll recommend it. He's in based in L.A. Okay. Um, so if you're ever down there, he's a fascinating guy. He's a comedian, hmm. very interested in in like right last week he was in Hawaii with Ram Dass and you know so he's wow. sort of like this transcendental you know hippie kind of <laughs> thinker, but he's very funny and goofy and he's, he's anyway he had a guy on who was a friend of his from high school or college I think who was in India and he took some of this anti-malarial stuff and he woke up in a train station with no idea who he was how he arrived in India wow the whole you know very similar kind of experience um, and it lasted about two weeks, I think. Huh. And they, you know, in India, they thought he'd overdosed on some drug. And, you know, uh, it was just a, a real weird situation. Um, he wrote a book about it as well. I don't remember what it's called. But he was profiled in the New York Times. And it was similar kind of thing. All this makes me think of Oliver Sacks, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Who's dying at the moment, I unfortunately. Know. And it has made such beautiful stories for us so we could understand the workings of the mind. Well, and this is right up his alley, all these questions of identity. So so what's Richard's relationship with your first husband? You know, I Mm. mean, how how does he think of that guy? Well, he doesn't, really. Um, In fact, there would be moments in time where I would seriously be grieving. I, I would be upset angry, crying, suffering because of the loss of that guy. And I would ask, he, he would cry, and I would see him start to cry, and I would say, are you feeling the loss of that man too? And he said, no, I don't know who that is, but I'm experiencing how it must be for you, who really wants that. So it, it was... That was one of the biggest shifts that our whole family really had to understand is that he had no grief. He had no desire to make that return because he didn't have any relationship with that former self. He listened to all the stories and what we wanted from it, but he didn't. How could he possibly go back there when he didn't recognize who that was? I mean, so, so he didn't feel any, any sense of inferiority, for example, like that other guy that I see in these photos with my face was funnier than me or was, no. you know, more macho than me. No. And what a weird hang-up, you know? Like, oh, my wife's first husband was me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that guy really pisses me off, you know? I'm trying to live up to this. Uh, what a weird I don't scene, think he huh? had it for himself, but That's I would good. have to say he had it for me. You know, he had it. I, I wish I could make her happier that was his whole motivation yeah. when i was really having a hard time yeah. yeah 
Have you, uh, I, I have to imagine you've spoken with a lot of people who have had similar kind of situations involving Alzheimer's with aging parents. Some. Mm-hmm. And I often, this is something I'm, I'm trying to write about in this, this book I'm working on now, which there's a lot, um, I'm trying to understand death and, you know, it's one of those things like memory where we act like we know what it is, but yeah. if you scratch it, you see like we have no fucking clue what we're talking about most of the mm-hmm. time. Like you were saying, he has no relationship with his former self. And that makes me think of the way we deal, the way we envision the death that precedes birth. Nobody's right. afraid of that. Everybody's no. afraid of the death that comes after life. But the death from which life came, no one talks about. Right. And it's the same place. Right. So how can that, you know, how can the post-life death be such a horror show and freak everybody out? But the one before, nobody has bad memories of, you know, before birth, right? It's like, well, there's nothing. There's no relationship at all. Right. And I'm even questioning whether, like, the body doesn't actually die, right? I mean, the body just becomes other forms. So it's really the personality. And what's the body anyway? I mean, you've got millions of, uh, and and me, not not just you, millions of microbes in your guts and every in your blood and your skin that don't share your DNA at all. So... The whole idea that you are an identity and I am an identity is another fiction. You're a system, a community. I'm a community. And that community is constantly changing and flux. And we're all just pretending to, you know, we're all agreeing that we know what the fuck's happening, but none of us do. No, not at all. Not at all. I remember there was this point when um, things started to shift with me with Richard when I woke up. And had this realization, you know, in that moment between sleeping and waking when there's just a little bit of nothing going on there. And then the story comes in about, I have to do this. I'm this person. I'm married to this. There's this whole set of responsibilities. But there's a gap before it comes in, you know, which is just, who is that? that's residing in that place. Yeah. Yeah, so I I think it's really fascinating, this whole thing about... um, who is this I? Who is this me that we seem to have such a close relationship with and think that we know who that is? I'm, I'm, I know that when we walk around here, we talk a lot about that me as personality and drives and goals, and you know, particularly in America, that the whole will to do everything and get things done. But I'm less and less convinced that that's the whole deal. In fact, the identity shakeup that he had kind of caused that to happen to me to really question fundamentally who I think I am. So where, what were you like before this happened? Do, are you religious? Are you, uh, what was your job? I know you've, you've written quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but you said you work with uh, soldiers. Is that in a writing capacity? Yeah, I'm teaching writing right now to oh, okay. soldiers. And I'm, I'm doing writing now. I used to do marketing and fundraising. And um, I, I came from a Catholic background military father more or less in the box Um, I would have to say some of the most humiliating parts of the book for me are especially during the early stages of Richard's recovery when I was trying to act more spiritually evolved than I actually am and I, I realized I had to include that in the book that level of exposure was really another woman who was trying to pass like, oh, I have this together and don't worry about me. I know what this looks like. 
but the more time that's passed and the more kind of fundamentally changed I've been, I really feel like I know less and less about who we are, what transpired, um, you know, where we're going, what death is, kind of mm. any any of those big questions. I think that identity is um, a complete... Um, not not fabrication. It's a way to get through life. It's definitely helpful to have that personality to be able to to get things done on a practical level here. But I'm more inclined to think that this is really um, all beings, as you talked about in the body metaphor with the microbes, all things being connected. Yeah. It's a yeah. momentum. It feels like more to me right. than it is a, a of everything joined rather than one isolated being who lives and dies lives and dies and that's why i that's why i think that the book is relatable to people because our identities are changing pretty radically all the time and that feels like a death at least it feels like a death to me when that goes on yeah yeah it's it's a death. I, I think there's uh, in American society. You know, we talk about the the, the worship of youth and and this. Uh, have you ever read Ernest Becker, um, Denial of Death? No. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Really I will interesting read that. book. It's sort of a um, central. A lot of research has come out of that book. Uh, there's a whole field of research called terror management theory uh, that comes out of Becker's book, which is looking at how our subconscious develops mechanisms to comfort us in the face of any reminder of mortality. <laughs> and we're completely unaware of it, but it changes our behavior. Like, for example, uh, one of the, the uh, experiments was they had people, like they were at a university or something, and they would stop and ask people walking down the sidewalk, what do you... Um, how, what should happen to illegal immigrants? You know, five years in prison, just sent back to their country, 10 years in prison, whatever, nothing. So there's a whole range of, of uh, options or, you know, uh, f petty crime, you know, thievery, whatever. And so they would ask people on the sidewalk and they got a certain set of answers. And then they'd ask people like a block further down the sidewalk after they'd walked past a funeral home. And the answers were radically different. Hmm. People were much more punitive, much more aggressive. And the only difference is they'd walk past a funeral home. They're reminded of death. Yeah, yeah. And completely subconsciously. Huh. And so their whole, I mean, there are hundreds of experiments now in this, this field. Um, why the hell am I talking about that? Something you said reminded me of Ernest Becker, and then I completely lost. Anyway, we'll get back to it when I think of it, if I think of it. <laughs> um, Oh, I know what it was. It was the youth, the, the worship of youth in American society. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's not a, an original thought to say that that's associated with the fear of death. So, we're, you know, and the problem is that your your 20-year-old self has to die for your 22 or 25-year-old self to be born. And because we don't want to let that youthful mm -hmm. person die... We end up like, you know, old teenagers. Right. It's pathetic. Right. Just trying to conform to whatever the ideals were years and years ago. I think it makes relationships really stale, too. Yeah. Because then you're not really curious about what's happening with the individual. I mean, any kind of relationship, not just marriage, but yeah. 
You know, like, who are you now, mom? Like, I have this assumption right. that I think I know who you are based right. on my childhood experience. But Well, and mom with you. You're always right. a kid to mom, yeah. right? It's like, let's let go of that. Let's let that shit die, sad as it is, so that the, the new people can be born. It's Right. Yeah, it's, it gets very Buddhist at a certain point, all yeah. this stuff. It's yeah. very much about clinging and, you know, renunciation and all that. So, uh, on a physical level, were there any interesting changes? Like, you know, Richard the First had an allergy to something, and the when he came back, he didn't anymore. And you know, different eyeglass prescriptions or stuff like that. Uh, food preferences changed. Uh, interesting. Yeah, he actually. What happened was most of his preferences were eliminated, so he went through pretty neutral, and. Um, Neutral with the combination of finding it very difficult to say no for years. I mean, we had to train him in developing a capacity to say no because it, he matched himself so fully with whoever he was with. Um, and uh, really, I think he more or less returned to a state of teenage boy for a period of time and really? yeah in it <laughs> yeah in his uh in his kind of uh wonderful goofiness but also in his sexuality as well so catch him watching porn <laughs> no I, I not not too much of that kind of thing but he I, I mean i met him when he was 18 or 19 years old so right. we've been together for a long time um but more like uh when that reset got hit on his sexuality, he had more issues related to, um, uh, you know, not being able to sustain or uh, not really knowing what to do um, or uh, being ready to go again 15 minutes later, you know, like really? just, yeah, it was, That's interesting. yeah, it was, it was an interesting circumstance to find myself in combined with, that quality of innocence that he so purely had. I, I'll, I'll tell you something about that that I find really crazy in my own mind now. I tried so hard to make him into closer to the man that he was, like we do with people. Like, I want to teach you how to be polite. I want to teach you what your life was like. But I'm really intrigued now, from this side of it, what he would have been like if I wouldn't have insisted so much on this is who your story is and this is what your narrative was. Like, what would he just naturally have evolved into? Or would he have hung out in that I don't have a preference for a lot kind of eager state for a really long period of time i mean mm. most of us don't get to experience that right to yeah. to get returned back to um not even an earlier time but maybe a time that never existed of having no preferences at least this i haven't this my yeah. personality is pretty oriented towards knowing what i want so he was very much the so no sense of opposite. disgust or like yeah, like if you put a plate of crickets in front of him he would be like okay we'll eat this now no no i mean after like after a while he would develop things but at first he might like what is that and do i want to eat it i don't know but maybe if it were delicious fried crickets it would have yeah well that's purely arbitrary right the fact that we find them disgusting but lobster is great yeah yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, I I um, I can relate to this a little bit in the sense that my my wife Casilda is multicultural and multilingual, mm. and my previous uh, relationship was with a woman who grew up speaking three languages from a very young age: uh, French, Catalan, and Spanish. And she moved to the States when she was 12, and, and her English was fantastic. Like, her accent's perfect. She'd say some weird shit occasionally, but her accent was perfect. And one time, she was talking on the phone. We were living in San Francisco, and she'd called back to Spain and was talking with her mother. She speaks French with her mother. And then her father got on the phone. She switched to Catalan with her father. And I was listening to her, and when she switched, I realized that it wasn't just Peggy speaking French and then Catalan. It was, they were two different people. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, maybe I'm the only one and maybe her mother, a couple, you know, who knew her really well would have noticed this, but that's a different person. Like her, her voice, uh, tone of voice changes or what she thinks is funny changes. Yeah. You know, like her body language was different. And that, at the time I was in graduate school, and that led me to look into multiple personality disorder. Mm. And the reason I asked you about allergies and things is that sometimes people who have multiple personality disorder will be highly allergic to something in one personality and completely not allergic in another. I have heard about that. Yeah, like even interocular pressure is different. So they need eyeglasses to read in one personality and the other doesn't. Mm. Like strange, you know, physiological signatures that are are related to different personalities. Mm. So that's why I was asking: Did he like? Did his smell change, or any any other sort of physical the way he walked, or the way he walked has changed? Mm. He had a strong sense of um, well. It, it kind of goes with being self aware, right? If one if one right. is self aware, you develop a sense of grace out of that because mm. you are aligning yourself with. A posture that people really find desirable in whatever culture that or you're living in. You know, or a, lot of, a lot of girls yeah. with large breasts develop this slumped right. shoulder thing because they're tired of being stared at. And then you you see them in another culture, and it's their body changes because it's you're not getting that same weird, creepy attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was hard to hmm. over time, you know, because the the cancer and the brain injury. Um, so much of his body attention had to go to that for a period yeah. of time until he got well again. But then after that, it's like, you know, from going from somebody who really was uh, quite graceful and had a certain way that they stood and presented themselves, he's he's more like, um, no disrespect, but like more genuinely ape-like, you know, like his arms hang. Hey, that's a compliment and in I, I, I agree with you. <laughs> and just walks really naturally uh-huh. in that way, like the how the body flops right. and moves. Right. Uh, so I do think uh, that he has gone back to uh, a better, not a better, uh, a cleaner relationship with his own animalness mm. than That's what he had before. Right. You know, like there's no filter saying it has to look like this or it has to be like that. Right. So I, that's why I think the preference thing was more key for me and really made me so curious about what it would be like to be like disinhibited of yeah. a lot of those things that I think I know about who I am and how I live and how I make up my ideas about things and what would it be if I just walked around like I actually feel inside instead of how, you know, hold your stomach in, you know, raise yourself up, look like 
the culture mm. asks you to look. Right. Except for that was happening at, at every single level for his whole life. Um, his vocal tone was the same. He had a really great voice before and does so right. now. So there were some ways that I could find him in uh, different qualities, but uh, uh, he wasn't inclined to um, move towards a relationship in the same way as he was before. So um, noticing that you're in the same space, certainly the desire for conversational engagement, wanting to be social, wanting to find ways to exchange ideas, that all, that desire has completely eroded in him. He kind of is patient with us and will you know give us what we need to be able to get by with, um, oh yeah, this is what I do at a family gathering now. I come mm. and tell a couple of stories, but really left to his own devices, that kind of desire is very minimal. Mm. Yeah. To, to just to engage with with people that he has to pretend he knows. Which yeah. Sort of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. It would be a relief, right? In some ways to be free of that. Do you yeah. think? Well, I mean, I'm the wrong guy to ask because I've spent most of my life far, far away from my family. So, uh, you know, it, it's never been a big imposition. Yeah. And I like most of the people in my family. So when I see them, it's it's... I mean, nobody ever asks, you know, where's Chris? Like, if I show up, it's like, oh, hey, Chris is Chris here. Is wow, here. Yeah. you know, but no one ever notices when I'm not. It's yeah. because I've been away forever. Um, I, I don't, you know, of course, anything I ask you that you don't want to talk about, sure. you know, I don't want to pry. But when you when you talk about him being neutral and, you know, some of these innate qualities that made it through the transition and others that didn't, and you're talking about sexuality. Is is there any insight uh, in terms of sexual orientation? What if mm-hmm. what if he'd woken up and instead of you, it had been a man that right. he had been married to? Right. Do you think he would have just like adapted to that, or do you think there would have been a conflict? Well, it's hard to ask about the hypotheticals because I don't really know. I do know that he was so neutral that. I think that any kind of story could have been assumed onto that, and he might have found his way to that. I mean, initially, I can tell you, I wasn't quite sure whether he um, was going to be attracted to men or not. That was undecided right. initially, and I talk about that in yeah. the book. And then he, within the first year or two, he kind of becomes aware that he is attracted to women, mm. primarily. And um, But there was like this... Like he was so oriented heterosexually previously that to even have that show up as a question was remarkable uh, to me. Right. To experience that with him. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Like is it is it like a you know, the prototypical uh if Johnny Depp shows up, is that you know, is it like only a certain caliber of a guy <laughs> yeah, that you right. would be attracted to or and he would be I don't know. Like it's it's like um the preferences in sexuality were also so diminished that he was completely open sexually to whatever might be suggested to him to try. Mm. And um and then not knowing what he really wanted or desired or 
having the conditioning of memory to say, this is what feels good to me. This is what my, you know, what my kinks are or what my attractions are or how I know myself, then everything was up for grabs. Yeah. Everything across a whole continuum of experiences. So that was when he was kind of returned to being a virgin. I felt this incredible responsibility. Yeah. Um, I mean, in many ways, I was a virgin when I met him. I, you know, I'd had intercourse with another guy friend, but I'd never had like what a woman's experience of orgasm or of really, you know, being um, partnered with somebody who really cared about that kind of experience. So I felt it was returning to uh, giving him something that he had provided for me when I was a young woman. And that really felt gentle and sweet and good and, you know, kind of kind of all of those things that are so exceptional about what lovemaking can really be right. with someone. Must have felt maternal as well on some levels. What felt maternal most of all was the caretaking of him. We had a hard road to go with. I did take over a lot of the responsibilities of the home that we had typically shared with each other and also because the memory wasn't there the constant reminders to do things and and you know so you're in a caregiving role for which is not a sexy place if you've been you know a rich intellectual friend yeah. to someone who has a high capacity for flirting and yeah. turning you on you know so that when really to bring us back to being lovers again one of the things that I had to do was dial that back so that I could be with him as a woman and not as somebody who was trying to figure out how to take care of him. Yeah. Yeah. So you were sort of putting it away for later. And were you worried that when you, like, later would never come? Yeah. Because with them. Um, with sexuality, um, with some kinds of memory loss, it's not like you learn it and then the next time the individual knows how to do it. So there, it's not just was even dozens of times with teaching, this is how I like to be touched or this is how a woman tends to respond. It was more like hundreds or thousands of times that that needed to happen. So it, it grew my acceptance of this is what it's going to take to be with um, and and great sense of humor about it we would just get really we would both get so um, ferocious and <laughs> about the freaking brain injury you know in the room and you know if you turn it towards we're just with this dynamic that is really frustrating for both of us rather than making about the other individual it could really shift things and we could actually laugh about what was going on for us yeah. in that way but um, I, I don't I, w I wouldn't I wouldn't want to not have that experience because it was such an extraordinary experience to have with someone and um, and it was really pretty in like when people look at that they think that there could be certain ways to control it you know like then you could just tell him what you wanted and you know you can have exactly the kind of life that you want to have but it really wasn't like that at all even though he didn't have preferences he had a really 
um, presence, you know, about who he was and how he wanted to be. And that included his erotic life, mm. as it does, right? Our erotic life isn't separate from mm. how we are and how we act in life. Yeah. So that just, it felt to me more like that was, it was part of a discovery for me to be in a place where I was in an open zone with somebody where I didn't have a lot of expectations and ideas about how things were going to go. Right. And that's uh, that's how my... Uh, ideas for myself and my own identity started to unravel quite not just through the sexuality but but through giving up oh that's what it looks like when you let go and you don't have to have things be a certain way and it can be this really you can just meet life in that way on life's terms and whoa it's it's so incredible to have that not that I wasn't frustrated and um, didn't have my moments along the way, but when I could just really be with that, it was such a uh, fascinating, wild ride to have. You're, you're reminding me of this this book people have heard me talk about before called "Don't Sleep There Are Snakes" hmm. by uh, Daniel Everett, who hmm. was um, he was a missionary who flew down to the upper Amazon with his wife and two children. Um, and uh, he was the only person who could speak this very unusual language of the Pinaha people. Mm-hmm. He flew down there um, to proselytize and convert them to his religion. And after he had been there a while, he left the religion. Uh, mm-hmm. His wife left him, took the kids. And he ended up spending about 30 years living with these people and essentially became an, an animist hunter-gatherer. I, you know, wow. He t- teaches at MIT's. You know. um, he didn't lose his Western identity, but he um, became so impressed by hmm. the immediacy of their relationship with the world. And it illuminated just how restricted his own experience was you know and so it's a similar kind of thing where you're you're trying to help someone who's lost and and then you find yourself following them you know mm-hmm. and like wait a minute i was lost you know it's cliche of course you know these sorts of stories tend to go that way but um it's really yeah it, it's amazing to experience nakedness i guess after Growing up in clothes and heels yeah. and zippers yeah. and yeah. all that shit. What, what about other relationships? Like you mentioned, your children, your teenage children, they were living at home when this all happened. We had one child living at home, and she went off to college fairly soon after that. So she, we had a, we had the first year of. It must have been very hard. Yeah, it was very hard. I think it was harder on the kids in a way because. Um, when you're with someone day in and day out, you have a chance to get used to what's happening. You have a chance to adjust. You have a chance to kind of see what's natural and normal and what's happening. Um, but I think it was jarring for them because they went in and out. And there were so many things that were that changed so rapid. Like from, from going to um, somebody who was very verbal and had a lot of interaction with them, um, to, I would take an index card and put on it whenever he would get on the phone with the kids, write on it, how are you today, and put it in front of him so that he would be 
prompted to say, initiate conversation on the phone. That's partly the way that we kind of taught him to re-engage with others because, as I said, the natural desire wasn't there. So there was a real, for all of us, but in particular for the kids, because they were in and out of his life, there was a floundering initially. They also needed to let that relationship die out because it wasn't, um, they didn't have always an easy relationship with either one of us in our first marriage. Um, And uh, particularly our son. And him and his dad, you know, had a lot of conflict with each other. So what really became apparent was in the return of him after the brain injury, what did they need to make amends about, if anything? How was that going to happen? Because that guy didn't exist anymore. And then what new relationship was going to emerge? And um, they, they both have a, both the kids have a really strong relationship with him now completely different I think from the relationship that they had when they were younger and before these events happen feels more like it's as it is as you mature anyway it's a little bit more egalitarian if you're lucky mm. and um, yeah and he's he's meeting them as adults exactly and also without a lot of desires for them mm. which I think has been really liberating so his this sort of laissez-faire, come what may approach to his own life extends to you and the kids. Yeah, he's just sort of happy to let people do what they do, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's nice. The, these Pinaha people, they're uh, they have absolutely no interest in hearing any story about something that you didn't personally experience. Oh, so fascinating! When a missionary goes in there and says, you know, starts talking about Jesus. Their question is, did you know Jesus? And, oh, no. Did your father know Jesus? No. Your grandfather? No. Then stop talking about Jesus. That's it. If you're, if someone alive now didn't experience this, it's not real. It's not relevant. So yeah. it's not that they're resistant to it. It's just that they're just, it, it has, it's not real. Why are you talking about that? You know? So things are experience-based. Right. And in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't even have, like, even in their, their language, it's very interesting, like, they don't have color words. There's no red or blue or whatever. It's like the color of the river, the color of this berry and, you know, this time of year, the color of that. Everything is associated with something else. And um, I'm trying to remember, I think there's no past tense either i think it's just you know you say i go with her yesterday Mm. so there's no linguistic change of verbs or i don't even know if there are verbs it's a very very unusual the counting is one two three many Mm. you know so it's everything is very immediate and if you know and so the focus like be here now right the whole culture is about right here right now and um you know, all these in the years that he was living with them, all these psychologists would fly down and you know, do research because this is this pristine, uh, uncontacted group, except for you know, a couple of missionaries. And uh, and he tells the story about how some of these uh, psychologists said, you know, these these people have to be the happiest people I've ever seen. They're, everyone's always smiling, and so to objectively figure it out, they set up cameras that just videotape people going about their days, and then they went back and looked at the tapes and calculated you know how 
what percentage of time people are actually smiling. And it's true, they're all just smiling all the time. And he says they're smiling because they feel comfortable in their world. And if they laugh about everything, if a windstorm blows down the hut, they laugh about it. If it, they catch a lot mm. of fish, they laugh. If they don't catch any fish, they laugh. It's just everything's funny and, you know, they have a, a, a sense of gratitude uh, and a mm. friendly relationship with their world. Mm. Then you, you know, compare that to our world, which is out to get us. It's toxic. It's trying to, you know, trick you into getting the extended warranty and you know, cops waiting to write you a ticket. And this is all this, you know, we think of our world as safe, but on a psychological level, our world is full of weird dangers that we can't anticipate and don't know how to manage. And, you know, if you get audited and the, you know, or this happens, or yeah. That, yeah, I don't know how to deal with all this shit. Nobody does. Yeah. Yeah, it's strange it progress. Sound, it sounds like a lot of like policing and control and consumption, the way that we live in comparison to that. I mean, that sound, what you're describing sounds like a pretty exciting way to live. Yeah, pretty certainly satisfying. Yeah. You know, and at one point, he asked them, uh, "Do you guys do you know why I'm here?" You know, like yeah. he was there to teach them about God, right? And their answer was, "Yeah, we know why you're here. You're here because the Pinaha are nice people, and the river's beautiful, and there are good things to eat. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you be here? Who wouldn't show up <laughs> exactly. for that? Like, yeah, that's why you're here. Come on, what kind of dumb question is that?" Uh, so, um, were Richard's parents alive when this happened? No. Well, he, actually, that's not true. He, um, his father was alive. His mother died very early in our marriage. Yeah. And um, part of what's in the book is about a reconciliation that he tries to do with his father. I won't ruin the surprise of what that event was or how that happens for people who want a surprise in the book. But it just seemed like every single thing that we tried to do to pin him to a story or his history, the rug got pulled out from under him mm. along the way. So he um, I, I, he does have family relationships and he has uh, close relationships with patients and people at work but he has a mm, less of a need for those to be fixed and look a certain way, you know, than yeah, I'm, ours. I'm, I'm trying to imagine, like, y you talked about prompting him to make conversation, and, and you said because he lost the natural desire for relationship or contact or whatever. And that makes me wonder, like, did he, I, I mean, would he be happy living alone in the mountains? I mean, would he be a hermit if you weren't there encouraging him to make these connections and drawing him into social networks? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that he would be a hermit. I think he'd have a desire to have um, an intimate relationship with a few people. But, uh, uh, he'd be a hermit uh, with a harem. Uh, yeah. Oh, wouldn't we all? <laughs> Doesn't that sound kind of ideal? <laughs> it sounds pretty good, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, and there's, um, you know, what I'm describing, too, was the natural state of him in the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, when all the prompt, he, he did get more sophisticated over time. However, what I see of him living with him day in and day out is there still would be the desire of really being the hermit with a harem, yeah. of really being, um, I'm okay if nobody comes in my, it's actually kind of a, a great 
partner to have for a writer. I love it because I can. There's no one pulling at me to um, have a set of engagements that I don't want to have when I just want to be in my own head. Mm. You know, and um, there's a lot of independence that both of us have with each other in relationship now. That is, um, I think, wouldn't have been there without something like this occurring or maybe even a maturing of a relationship to that level I, th- I think in a way it's I, that's the way that I characterize it too is you know we've been together for a long time and there are these ways that you get to know each other that you can finally allow the other person to be who they actually are mm. and um, I, I, I can't speak for him but my in that regard but for me it's acceptance of, of Oh, I'm I'm with someone who doesn't like to talk, and I'm, I'm I was just talking with a colleague who said, "What's it like to be with someone who like doesn't have the intellectual literary conversation that you really want to have and and long for?" And I said, "Well, he doesn't have to be the one that provides that to me. Is ultimately where I go with that. I can have that with you know uh, colleagues like you or." Um, with books or, you know, in many, many other ways, but he doesn't have to represent who that is to me. And in fact, his generosity and kind of presence more than makes up for what I want in other areas. So it does kind of, it feels more like this is um, in a strange way that I've found the relationship that I've always wanted. <laughs> With a guy who'll just shut the hell up. <laughs> and just do his own thing. <laughs> and be ready in 15 minutes for another round. Oh, you yeah. can't argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, well, this this is such an amazing story and, and so uh, nourishing the way that you've dealt with it, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, it it could have gone lots of different directions at at any point. With this sort of experiential insight into the intangibility of identity and the the disconnect between body and identity, mm-hmm. do you think about Alzheimer's or you know uh, mm-hmm. getting old together? If you find yourself in a similar situation 30 years from now are you going to think about it differently than most people do I mean I'm not trying to put you in a weird spot but yeah. I, I often think about this and Cassie and I have talked about this she's a doctor she's a psychiatrist so she's seen a lot of stuff and, and both of us are very um, uh, I mean I, I'm very suicide friendly mm. Um you know, I'm very much. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about death not being mm-hmm. that big a deal and transitions and all these things. And I, personally, I feel like if I'm not me, if I don't remember anyone, then I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And I don't need. I would hope that my physical body didn't wasn't causing people trouble. You know, like I don't care at that point. I'm not here to care. Mm-hmm. So I. I I don't know exactly what I'm saying, but you know, I think this is a situation that more and more people are facing as the baby boomers age, right. and we've got all these brain diseases related to being, you know, at a certain age. I think this is a big issue that we're trying to figure out: what is alive, what is dead, 
if you don't remember anyone in your life, are you even alive? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, and I, I do think that people have the right to conscious death. You know, I think they have a right to decide when they want to go. And I don't think that the whole medical establishment needs to be involved in that. But my experience after seeing Richard go through this is that um, the personality and the memories aren't all that there are that makes us human. Mm-hmm. And there's something else there, which I I use the word essence for sometimes, or beingness, that is beyond that set of memories or history that brings us back to a, um, a continuity or a self-reinforced narrative. Mm. And that presence is really fascinating to be around. And if that individual doesn't want to be there for that, I think it's totally great to call out on that. Yeah. I don't I don't want to I don't want to be in this state anymore. This isn't right. what I came here for. Right. But I'm just saying from my experience and I'm and I'm not a religious person at all. I'm this is I'm saying what I observed, which is that there's something there that I'm engaging with that is beyond personality. And that memory isn't really necessary in my experience to be defined as a human you must have experienced some very profound loneliness yeah in this process oh yeah because you can't explain you had to write a book to explain to people what it was like and they're still only getting a tiny taste of it yeah i i think that was a thing i was really um one of the most frightening experiences for me about the writing of the book was touching in with my loneliness and um, and being to some extent I don't know if you struggle with this when you write books but feeling a responsibility for the reader in some way about am I going to if I really say who I am and how I thought is that somehow going to be harmful to people to mm. see in, in their what experience respect? well because um, you're modeling behavior yeah, I guess I guess there are ways that I wish I could say that I was a better person at different... Like, I wish yeah. I could say, um, you know, when shit goes down like this, um, I, I showed up in this heroic fashion, but I just couldn't paint myself in that way. So I worry about discouraging people who are caregivers for how tough it might be, discouraging people who need to have this surgery that it might be just as dramatic for them. It's actually not. It, it, many, many people need the surgery for survival. Um, I included an extensive notes section in the back of the book so that I could show current research and how it demonstrates that the surgery is the gold standard for treatment for pseudomyxoma peritoni, which is his form of appendix cancer. Um, yeah, just, pl- just places where I felt more cautious because I didn't want people to assume a universal or a global experience on what it was that was occurring for yeah. me. But yeah, there was a lot of loneliness. And um, there's a great... Um, it was a great experience of really connecting with who I am, mm. you know, and out of loneliness really arriving with a strong sense of uh, coming back to to or coming into who I am now, 
some people say that there's there's strength in that but it really just felt like I was less and less concerned with what people thought of me and roles and what I should be and more um, thinking about who, who am I to myself what are my ideas about what this life is really about maybe some individuation that I didn't get to do along the way because I got married so young maybe that was part of the process too for me but that mm. felt really great um, to do and you know I made great friends too to torment with my <laughs> with the, the ongoing story of what was happening of what was unfolding yeah, and that bet. helped with the loneliness too lunch with Sonia must have just been like <laughs> tickets sold out early for those huh? oh my god I had this policy at one point when I was really lonely and depressed that I had to have uh, five people to call five different people so that I would never call the same person twice because I, I thought if I call the same person th- the next day I'm going to drag them down right, with me right. so I had to pace it out to thank God five great friends who talked me down off the wire every single day for weeks and weeks yeah yeah well you confronted some elemental issues in all this I yeah. mean, it's, it's, as I said, every marriage goes through these things where you look at the person and say, this isn't the deal I made, you know, way yeah. back when, assuming. But the funny thing is that, you know, I'm assuming I'm the same guy and she's changed. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Which is bullshit, of yeah. course, right? She didn't, she didn't agree to this either. You right. Know? So, uh, but yeah, having it uh, exposed so elementary. It's like it's it's kind of like what you've been through is a desert, you know. All the trees are gone, all the bushes. So you see the the structural shape of of a relationship in really clearly. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing the story. Thank um, you for the, asking. The me. name of the book is Wondering Wondering Who You Are, Who you are Sonia Lee. And it's out in July, which is when we'll release this podcast. We're not telling you when we're actually talking. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't discussed current events, so it's timeless. Timeless. It's one, two, three now, like like your people. Yeah. One, two, three more. (laughs) Exactly. It's the eternal present. Eternal present. Um, Well, great. I can't think of anything. I know the minute I turn this machine off, I'm going to have 15 more questions. Ah, I should have asked her that, but maybe we can... Uh, after your, when you become a world-renowned author, we'll have you back on and Thank talk you. about what that's like. Thank you, I appreciate it. Because you're going to be getting a lot of weird attention. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I mean, you've been through this gamut before. You can probably tell me a little bit more about what I'm up for. But I know that when you're intimate about your life with people, people are going to have reactions to that. Yep. So, um, you know, I I think that, I, what I really love and what I really love about when I go around talking to students that I teach and, and um, you know, people out there in the world is people are kind of dying for this kind of conversation to yeah. happen. They're dying to really go beyond the roles that we have. And I think this caregiving, you know, uh, perception of this is what a wife looks like or this mm-hmm. is what a mother looks like. You know, there's so, there's so many women essayists right now who are really talking way beyond that, who are really um, you know, Megan Dom and, you know, Lydia Yeknovich, here, you know, here in Portland and Maggie Nelson, people who are writing about 
their own intimate lives and what it is to care for another and what it is to be in relationship in brilliant new ways. And I love being part of that dialogue. And I think that we should be talking about it outside of, you know, these roles that can have a tendency to confine us and hold us and really limit us. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. A lot of people are going to be asking you for help. And that's going to be hard to to close your heart a little bit to that. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that to me, that's one of the hardest things about going from being anonymous to someone, because people project stuff onto you and think you're going to have the answer for them, and especially in your situation, they're going to be writing to you from a very, you know, painful place often. Yeah, that is happening already. Um, the, there's a salon piece that came out about Richard's. Um, yeah, I read that. Losing but, his sexuality, yeah. and uh, you know, I thought we were strange and weird when that happened but I had a number of men who wrote me after that in particular men who said um, thank you mm-hmm. thank you nobody knows what it's like out here to go through something like this and um, you know thank you for being willing to say it and thank you for sticking with it yeah yeah well that's the beauty of it. and you said earlier um, you felt a, a concern that maybe you were hurting readers in some ways by discouraging them or being too clear about what it was really like. But I, I think the the honesty nourishes people so much Yeah. that everything else you can forget about. If you're just honest about your experience, that gives them so much more than whatever you're taking away by you know, not beautifying the experience or whatever. Right, that's all we've got, really, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think if people just feel a sense of community, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. What's the name of the salon article so people can look for it? How My Husband Forgot Sex. Right. Yeah, okay. really simple. On salon.com. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much for asking me. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest. You want to shut it up but give it a rest. You're going to die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. Headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end 
a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.